Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough Preface The reader may rest assured that the narratives contained in this volume are substantially true. To this many persons now living in the neighborhood can testify. The names mentioned are real names, both of persons and places. Some of them have again arisen from my connection with the chapel for the destitute. I am a tradesman and make no pretension to literary ability. I wish to acknowledge the goodness of God and to be very thankful that he condescends to use me in any way as a medium of good to others. And to him my prayer still is, Hold thou my right hand. John Ashworth, Broadfield, Rochdale, January 1st, 1866. Millie. A man who tormented himself and others with his bad temper called at a barber's shop to be shaved. After the operation, he put down a penny as usual and was going out when the barber said, Stop! Stop! It's three halfpence this time. How so? observed the new-shaved man. It was only a penny last week. So it was. But you are bad-tempered today, and your face is much longer this week than last, and the job more difficult. Three halfpence, if you please. The barber might be only jesting with his surly customer, but there is no doubt that temper alters the shape of the countenance. Of this there are many evidences, and Milly, our early acquaintance, was one. Grievous offences against children may in afterlife be forgiven, but they are seldom forgotten. An aged neighbour of mine, a kind old woman, had on several occasions given me a little bread and butter. She was one day baking and made me a little cake. I watched the oven with intense interest until my small muffin was ready. It seemed a long time, but at last the good-natured old creature pronounced it quite enough, and was putting it into my pinafore, when hearing feet descending the stairs she cried out, "'Run, child, run! Milly's coming! Milly's coming! Run, run!' There was not time for me to escape out of doors, so she opened the pantry door, bidding me be very quiet. I got into the farthest corner amongst the coals, and sat silent and almost breathless with fear, my hot cake burning my fingers. But Milly had suspected something, and opening the pantry door, snatched the bread from my hands, gave me a sound box on the ear, and pushed me out into the street, threatening vengeance if I ever came there again. There I stood, my ear singing and burning, robbed of my precious cake, and turned out of doors for no fault of my own. My opinion of Milly was formed that day, and years have not changed it. 
Nor was I alone in this respect, for all the children in the neighborhood, from some cause, held her in the greatest dread, and those older in experience and knowledge avoided her company. She was feared and shunned by all, young and old. Milly's infirmity was unmistakably seen in her face. It was not the miserable, haggard countenance of a drunkard's wife, nor the sad look of painful and sharp sorrow, but cold and cheerless, leaving disagreeable impressions from which a child, a dog, or a stranger would turn away. Her temper had stamped itself on her features as it does on all, but perhaps shows more in women than men, especially since men began to wear beards. Had she cultivated a kind, sunny, genial spirit, she might have been thought handsome. But her temper settled that question. A sweet disposition will make a plain woman beautiful, but a sour temper will spoil any face. Milly's occupation, together with all that composed the household, consisted in spinning, winding, and weaving flannel pieces, all working together in a large upper room. The aged creature who made me the unfortunate cake was mother or grandmother to all, and it was painful to witness her constant anxiety to keep peace amongst them, and especially to please Milly, for she knew if Milly was kept right, the others would not give her much trouble. She anticipated all her wants, was silent when sharp words were spoken, and would watch her countenance to see how matters stood, just as she would look at the clock to tell the time of the day. When the cloud was on Milly's brow, which it often was, the timid mother would walk up and down the house restless, looking in every corner to see if aught was wrong. Had she been sitting near the fire, she would have moved back to give her room. Had she been reading, she would have laid down the book and taken her knitting, fearing fault would be found with her for being idle. But there was the greatest difficulty to please Milly with her food. The potatoes were either over or under-boiled, the meat either raw or burned, the tea too weak or too strong, the bread and butter too thick or too thin. Sometimes, when called to her meals, she would have looked on the table, and because the provisions did not suit her, Without speaking a word, she would have turned round and gone back to her work, or sat down in the sulks. The poor mother would then be very miserable, fret, and be unable to take food herself, and say, "'What is the matter, Milly? Tell me. I have done my best.' But Milly would not condescend to answer, but sulk on never speaking to any of them the remainder of the day, or perhaps for several days. Sulking at her dinner on one occasion, her niece, a strong, healthy young woman, observed, "'Well, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. We shall have so much more.' 
but she was instantly caught by the hair of the head, and instead of joining at sulky Millie's share, Millie gave her tears for her own dinner. And that day, as on many former occasions, there was sulking, anger, and sorrow in the whole house, peace and harmony entirely destroyed, all through the temper of Millie. But Millie's mother always suffered the most from these outbursts of her daughter's temper. The poor old creature would tremble and weep for hours. It is sad when children, by their conduct to parents, increase the sorrows inseparable from the infirmities of old age. For the venerable, in years to say, as I have heard one say, I have lived too long, and I am in the way now. There was a time when I could have borne sharp words and angry looks better than I can now. I was not then dependent on others. I could earn my own bread and fight my own battles in life. Now I cannot, and I bitterly feel it. But I shall not trouble them long. They are fast shortening my days, and I would advise people never to pray to be old. Let the Lord take them when he will, if through Christ they are ready. For it is better to be in heaven than grieved at the fireside of others when our limbs are feeble and we cannot help ourselves. These painful words were spoken by an aged parent suffering from the hot temper and cruel words of a child. How many homes have been deprived of their sunshine by the black cloud of one bad temper? How many families made miserable by the culpable selfishness, the morose, moody, sullen disposition of a milly? How many happy social circles have been broken up? And how many joyous, pleasant parties turned into grief by one milly? They change cheerfulness into sadness, sweet into bitter, honey into gall. Being wretched themselves, they cannot bear to see others happy. Miserable in their own souls, they take a fiendish delight in making others miserable, and perhaps nothing rouses their bitter malignity, their intense hatred, so much as caring nothing about or trying to be cheerful in spite of them. This is always an unpardonable offence. But to be absolutely indifferent to the conduct of others, especially of those with whom we live, is impossible. The genial soul and smiling face will warm our hearts. The surly look and frozen soul will chill them. We cannot help it do what we will. Of this... The following fact is an instance. A shoemaker, who had married a wife with a little of the milly temper in her, was rather surprised to find that she could sulk. He was a steady, industrious, careful man himself, and was determined he would not allow his wife's temper to affect his own. He tried to whistle and sing as usual, but found he could not. 
He tried to laugh her out of her sulks, but it only made matters worse. He felt vexed and uneasy in spite of himself. Having scratched his head and pondered over the matter, he thought he would sulk too, but he was not bad enough for that. It would not suit his sunny soul. Hitting on what he thought would stop this sulking, he said in a whisper to Fred, a young lad he had as an apprentice, Fred, go into every one of the thirteen cottages in this row and tell all the women to come as quick as possible. Mistress has been struck dumb. Quick, Fred, quick. Fred thought it was true for he had not heard the mistress speak for three days, so he ran into every house, saying, "'Come, come, mistress has lost her speech, and master wants you to come and see her. Do come!' The sulky, ill-tempered wife, unconscious of what was going on, sat sewing at the fireside, and very soon Seven of the neighbors all stood around her, with faces expressing their sympathy with the speechless woman. One of them said, "'What a pity! What a pity! How did it come on?' The shoemaker's wife was astonished, and in her astonishment rose up, and looking at the crowd of women exclaimed, "'Whatever is there to do?' The merry cobbler was peeping out of his small workshop to see how matters went, and the moment he heard his wife speak, said to the now confused group, I am very much obliged to see you. She can speak now, and if she becomes dumb again, I will let you know. I am not sure the cobbler took the wisest course in this matter, nor do I recommend it. By a practical joke, he had made his sulken wife speak, but it was at the expense of exposing her temper to the whole neighborhood, and thus lowering her in her own self-respect and the respect of others, and this seldom results in real good. I would advise all people that sulk to give notice that they are going to sulk, and how long, and why. This they ought to do, and this might have saved both the cobbler and his wife from the ludicrous dilemma. Millie had one or two redeeming features in her character. She was clean, industrious, and honest, and also attended church. But these good qualities were sadly clouded by her temper and when Mr. Forster, the minister of St. Stephen's Church, at the request of Milly, consented to preach in her house, all the neighbors were surprised. They could not understand how bad temper and religion could go together. Some thought of writing to Mr. Forster to tell him what sort of a person Milly was, but if they did, the minister perhaps thought that good might be done both to her and others, for he came several times. I do not think she was considered a member. Any church would be disgraced by having a bad-tempered member, as such a church would be denuded of what gives luster to Christian life, love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness. 
A surly, moody, sullen temper is the very opposite of that Christianity taught by the meek and lowly Jesus. This the world knows, and bad-tempered professors of religion little know the harm they do. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. I know there is an old saying, but a very foolish one, that what is bred in the bone cannot come out of the flesh, that temper, like other developments of our depravity, may be transmitted, or rather produced by example, admits of no doubt. Bad-tempered parents have often bad-tempered children. They copy what they see. But it is a mere excuse for any man or woman to say or believe that they cannot subdue the worst temper and bring it under entire subjection. They may, and they ought, and they would, if they strongly wished it. But it is a burning shame and a disgrace for persons professing Christianity to give heed for a moment to the thought that the grace of God cannot root out the worst temper ever Satan made. All admit that the new birth of which Christ spoke to Nicodemus is an entire spiritual change. Old things passed away, and all things become new. But pray, what is changed if the bad temper is the same? It may, and does in some, fight hard, but it is weak as a feather if we only accept offered grace. I remember being in a neighbor's house when a messenger came from the office in great haste to say he was wanted immediately. Off went his slippers, and he called out, My shoes! My shoes! But his shoes were very dirty. The servant had neglected to clean them, but quickly began to brush and get them ready. The master turned his back to the fire, standing in his stocking feet, and began to whistle a favorite tune. The moment the shoes were finished, he slipped them on, and away he went. Seeing him again on the evening of the same day, I said, When you began whistling this morning while your shoes were being brushed, was it the safety valve? Yes, I intended it for one, he laughingly replied. How long have you had that safety valve, may I ask? Well, sir, after my conversion, I found a bad temper to be my besetting sin and I made a vow that for six months I would devote ten minutes every day to think and pray over my infirmity, asking for strength to conquer, and by grace I obtained a complete victory, and so may anyone who seeks divine help. I have to watch over it yet, and I ought to watch over it, or any other besetment." If I were to give the name of this man, thousands would know him, and hundreds testify to his amiable and gentle temper. His presence in any company is a charm to banish grief away, to snatch the cloud from care, 
Turn tears to smiles, make dullness gay, spread gladness everywhere. And that ought to be said of everyone professing to be religious. Lovely tempers are the flowers and fruit of grace. Milly, like all persons of her disposition, was a self-tormentor, and also a tormentor of others. She was on bad terms with herself and her neighbours. The niece, whose hair she pulled on the day the dinner was wrong, was visited by a young man who was anxious to make her his wife. Knowing Milly well, he kept out of her way as much as possible, fearing to bring either himself or his intended in collision with her. But one evening, as he stood near the door, she very abruptly ordered him away. He was much grieved at her insolent conduct, and did not move off as quick as she expected. She snatched up the tongs, and struck him behind the head with such force that a little more would have killed him. He bled profusely. His parents, sisters, and brothers who lived close by, hearing that he was much hurt, ran in great haste to see what was the matter. When they learned how and why he was wounded, their wrath and indignation was poured on the head of Milly, all the inhabitants of the village taking their part. Some cried out, Take her to the pump! Take her to the pump! Others, Bring her out and we will stretch her curls! And had it not been for her quiet sister, who begged of them not to hurt her, she would have reaped on the spot what she had sown. Milly trembled with fear that night, and for several days dared not leave the house. She saw she had made a mistake. Her temper had nearly brought her before a jury. The whole village cried shame on her, and her relatives were grieved and humbled. People advised the niece to be married at once, and not live another month with such a pest as her aunt. The preaching in the house was given up. Friends who had tried to defend and screen her could do so no longer. No one wished her company, and very few saluted her with a good morning. She frowned on others, others frowned on her. She was not friendly, therefore had no friends. Let all sour-tempered people know that this must and will be the result of their morose souls. They will be shunned and avoided as a natural and very proper consequence. There was a dressmaker in the neighbourhood that held out in favour of Milly, when almost everyone else had given her up. This dressmaker was a kind, patient person, and never would have a disrespectful word spoken of an absent person without trying to say what could be said in her favour. She thought some excuse might be made for Milly, because she was so like her father, that having been trained wrong, all the blame ought not to rest on her. Milly took a gown to be made to this person, and seemed very cheerful and agreeable. 
Exact orders were given and exactly carried out, for the dressmaker was determined to convince the neighbors that she could keep on right terms with the surly one. But the gown had to be altered, and again altered, and because she refused to alter it a third time, she got a few stinging words from Milly's hot tongue, and a rather pompous threat that she never need expect another stitch from her a promise for which the dressmaker sincerely thanked her. Though defeated in her good intentions to keep on friendly terms with her bad-tempered neighbor, she would not speak a word against her. When her name was mentioned, she would laugh and shake her head, nothing more. Milly, as might be expected, was considerably advanced in life before she was married. No young man that valued his peace of mind would for a moment think of being tied to such a vixen. No doubt many, like the cobbler, are taken in a little and have to do as well as they can. The fat, easy, sleepy, come-day-go-day man that took Milly to be his wife was the object of general sympathy. An old acquaintance, meeting him, remarked, "'Why, I understand you are going to be married. Is it true?' "'Yes, I suppose it is,' was the answer. "'Well, I do not like to say anything, but you may make up your mind that you will never be able to sit on the right side of the hearthstone, or have sweet words to mend hard times.' This opinion from one who knew Milly well did not prevent the wedding, and when he finally took her out of the neighborhood, an old man declared that he was a public benefactor, for he had delivered them all from a firebrand. Little was heard of her after, for her new home was a single house at a considerable distance from any other, just such a place as all Millies should reside in, in mercy to others. The old man was right when he called Milly a firebrand, and this will be true of most, if not all, bad-tempered people, for as the Bible says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and he that hath a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. Perhaps nothing gives us a better conception of the torment of infernal spirits than a morose, gloomy, malignant temper. It is like the perpetual sting of the scorpion, in bitter spite stinging others, and in madness stinging itself. It is an evidence of deep depravity of heart, of a wretched, unsubdued, guilty soul. The poison of asps is under the tongue, and the venom that destroys all peace is in the heart. If a bad-tempered person does good at all, it is but negative. We are sometimes so disgusted and mortified with their conduct that we determine never to degrade ourselves by such exhibitions of weakness, or rather wickedness, Knowing that it is a deadly foe to our peace, 
the very opposite of Christianity and a grievous sin against God and man, we feel we must be on our guard and watch and pray to avoid such a disgrace. There is no excuse for bad tempers, no more than there is for swearing, lying, or stealing. We all, like the man that stood whistling in his stocking feet, may have a safety valve. Provided we follow his example, we may possess those sweet tempers that are the sunshine of life, the milk and honey of the soul, springing from love and begetting love, and turning winter's gloom into perennial spring. It is now many years since Millie boxed my ears and robbed me of my precious little cake, but she is still remembered, for she became a sort of standard of temper. If anyone sulked, it would be said, What, another Millie? If they set mischief among their relations and neighbours, it was observed, why, she is as bad as Millie. If a person had a rasping tongue and a fiery temper, someone was sure to say, she is Millie number two, or she is a regular Millie. This sketch of Millie is not overdrawn. She is only one of many hundreds, and my object is to hold up the mirror to old and young, showing how grievous, odious, and sinful bad tempers are, and by so doing induce others to determine that, by divine help, they will never be like Millie.